Hello and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. I'm Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm and last we talked I was telling you guys about my fire cider and I had told you guys that I had been sick with influenza. Well I'm happy to report that I am influenza free and I am definitely doing much better Um, but you may have noticed that my voice sounds a little different and that is an unfortunate lingering effect of my having the influenza. Um, I assure you I am not in any pain but my throat and uh, parts of my lungs are inflamed from all of the coughing and um, just being damaged essentially from being sick and so um, according to my doctor, it can take up to three months before my voice is fully repaired. Um, I'm doing everything in my power to get that to be uh, fixed up before then, but you may hear me talking with some frogs. You may hear me clearing my throat or coughing more than normal, um, and I apologize for that, but it is it is me being raw. You'll notice when I do my podcast, I don't do a lot of editing, and I, I don't I don't edit out the things that are just part of everyday life. Um, I'm not recording in a fancy recording studio. I'm not on a sound stage. So what you hear are the real and raw sounds of life at Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, including my dogs occasionally chasing things, which very well could happen while we're talking today. But today's episode, I have my absolute favorite guest of all time on the show today. He is the most important person in my life, and that would be my husband, Bob. And today we are going to go over some things. You know, it's 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 winter here in Ohio, and all I can dream about is getting out into the garden and getting into the soil and digging and planting and all of the wonderful green and lush, colorful things that the harvest, you know, brings about. But we're in Ohio and it's January, so there's not a ton of of growing that I'm going to be doing outside right now, but that does not mean but my homesteading adventure is done for the winter. Oh no. With homesteading, there is always things to be done. And I'm gonna pass the I'm gonna pass this off to Bob uh to talk a little bit about some of his tips for things to do around the homestead to set yourself up for success throughout the year. These are all things that can be done right now, even though it's bitter cold and rainy and snowy and just terrible outside. There are some things that you can be doing. So, Bob, take it away. Hello, everybody. I uh, have a few less frogs in my throat, so I get to do the majority of the talking today. Uh, Like Heather said, I want to focus on things that set you up for success in the coming year. There's not a whole lot you can do outside in the actual garden right now, but that doesn't mean that, that there aren't things that you can do to to get your best foot forward going into the new year. I want to start with just general cleaning and tidying. Um, Through the course of the year, you're busy, you're working, you're planting, you're harvesting. Um, Things have a tendency to not get put put away like they should. So in between snow and ice storms, take a little walk around, around your homestead and look for things that got left where they don't belong. These could be tools, it could be pots and planters and hoses and things like that. Hopefully you don't have any hoses still connected because you'll be replacing some pipes here soon, but make sure all that stuff is clean and put away. Um, While you're putting the tools away, now is also a good time to do tool maintenance. You want to oil up all of the metal surfaces, especially if it's got hinges or joints or anything. 
you want to oil up any of the wooden handles um, just to make sure that they don't rust, they don't rot, uh, cracking wood. Um, it's a good time to sharpen the blades on the anything that has a blade. Um, I also like to take this time of year and use this as a good opportunity to condition the wooden handles on some of my wooden tools. Um, now, all you gotta do is throw a little linseed oil on them, or there there are a ton of different things you can linseed, use. wax. Linseed oil works. Mineral oil works. Almond oil. Uh, they make an oil for cutting boards that's really good for those. Grapeseed oil, um, things like that are great for the wood. As far as the metal, um, I like to use the 3-in-1 machine oil or the WD-40, preferably the WD-40 black because it has more staying power. Um, again, you can use the same mineral oil that you use for uh, the wooden stuff. Carnauba wax, beeswax, you can actually use Vaseline on some of the stuff. Um, you, but you want to get it well coated, and if it's almost to the point of dripping off the tool right now, that's not a problem. You're, you're going to have that tool sitting in storage all winter long, and when you go to use it in the spring, you can wipe off the excess then. For now, it's not hurting anything. Um, we mentioned earlier the hoses. Walk around and double-check that all the hoses are disconnected, preferably drained and rolled up and put away. A uh, hose that's left on when you get one of these real cold snaps will just destroy your frost tap, your faucet, spigot, whatever you've got, and cause an expensive repair. Um, if you've got any battery-powered tools, um, you want to move the chargers inside over the winter. I know people say freeze the batteries and all that. Well, that's all well and good for a, a repair on a busted one. But for, for prolonging the battery life, the more stable you can keep the environment they're in, the better. So if you don't already have your chargers indoors, like not in a barn or a shed, but actually in the house, uh, go ahead and move them in now. We've actually got a big rack set up in the back room of our house where all the chargers hang on the wall and all the tools hang next to them. And you can look real quick and grab a, a battery and see what's charged and what's not but you wanna make sure those are inside. Any of your bigger items outside, like we have a tractor, we have a, a riding lawnmower, we've got a, a snow blower that's on a battery, any of those, put them on a trickle charger. Uh, again, the goal is to make sure that the battery does not go dead over the winter. Um, trickle chargers, you can pick them up online as, I've, I've seen them as low as 10, but you can get a good one for around 20 bucks and they are worth their weight in gold. Um, you want to drain um, the fuel out of anything you don't plan to use or add fuel stabilizer. Um, this uh, fuel stabilizer, you can get it at any uh, auto parts place, any store that has an a, um, automotive section. It's cheap and it's good insurance that you don't face gummed up bad fuel when you go to start things up in the in the spring. Um, if you've got large implements that you can't move inside and you don't have room for them in the barn, cover them with a tarp. Uh, you want to keep the environment off of them as much as possible. And a tarp is, is good cheap insurance if you don't have a, a garage big enough to park your tractor. 
um, and we use it for the wood chipper and all that stuff. Uh, another item to look at while you're making sure you're ready to go, um, generators. Make sure your generators have fresh fuel in them and go ahead and fire them up to make sure they start. There's nothing worse than a power outage over the winter and you go, oh, it's okay, I've got a generator. And you go out to get the generator and it hasn't run since two years ago and it's not going to crank. So now you've got to fix a generator in the dark so that the, the food you've got stored doesn't go bad. Go ahead and fire that thing up and make sure it's working. Same goes for um, supplemental heating. If the power goes out and you don't have a wood-burning fireplace or something along those lines, do you have a kerosene heater you can bring in or a salamander or something like that that you can keep your house warm if it gets, if it gets too cold outside and you don't have normal power? Uh, along those same lines, do you have kerosene? Do you have propane? The fuel for those heaters. Stock up. It's, it's a good time to go and check and make sure that that your kerosene tank is full or that you've got propane tanks and that they're not empty. If you are using a wood burning thing, do you have plenty of wood chopped up and split? Um, take advantage of, of breaks in the weather and go out and chop you some wood. It'd be good to get outside anyway. And you're stockpiling it, making sure that it's, it's ready to go. Um, do you have enough of your staple foods on the shelf. We, we hope we've harvested enough to make it through all the bad times, but do you have enough? If, if you can't get to the grocery store, what are you going to do? Well, now's a good time to, to double check that and make sure that you are set up for not only success, but survival. We've seen some empty grocery shelves and all it takes is three snowflakes around here and people start panicking and clearing out the grocery. So having those items already at home on the shelf, not having to worry about it, not having to drive in the snow and the sleet and the rain, you're better off. Um, and that's about all I've got on my list of things. I'm going to give the phone back to Heather. <laughs> all right. So those are some tips for Bob for things to do, mostly outdoor things that you can do around the homestead. And I'm going to talk about some things that I'm doing inside the home and inside um, to, to have ourselves prepared for the best season we can possibly have. Now, I talked about it a year ago, and the most important tool that you can have for your homestead and for your garden is a well-done garden plan. Now, if you listen to my show and you took my advice from last year, hopefully you've kept a garden journal with logs of what kind of varieties you'd planted, what went well, what didn't do so well. Any idea why they didn't do so well? Did you have exceptional amounts of pest pressure on something specifically? Was it variety specific or was it, you know, plant type? Was it something that uh, could easily be rem remediated by adding more water or did it not get enough sunlight? Did it get too much sunlight? So now's the time to be taking those plans from last year and your notes that you should have been making throughout the year about what was going well and what did not. And now you've got enough enough time behind you into the winter season that you've got a good idea for what things did you store for winter that you're just not using. Um, I'll be really honest. We, we ended up with um, about 50 acorn squash 
And I thought that where I had put them was somewhere where I'd remember they were there and would access them, but they were also in the correct conditions that they needed to stay, you know, good over the winter. But the reality is, and I, I realized it this afternoon actually, was that I had gotten them put up in, in an area where they are not in my sight line and therefore I often forget they're there. Um, so I know that I need to store my acorn squash differently next year so that I don't forget that it's there. Now that's not to say that any of my acorn squash has gone bad because it has not. It's just, I should have been using it a lot more this, this season and I haven't simply because I forgot where it was. Um, so that's something to look into. Did you put away 20 quarts of whole tomatoes and it's now January and you're realizing that you're out or you're almost out already. So those are things that you need to note as well so that you know for next year that if you want to become more self-reliant, you need to plant more of whatever you need to plant more of and less of things that you're finding your family doesn't enjoy. You know, I have a friend that made a ton of chutneys uh, because she had a ton of zucchini. So she made this, this zucchini chutney and then she realized that she didn't actually like it. It was a great recipe and it used a bunch of things that she had a surplus of so she made a ton of it only to realize after she ate it that her and her family don't like it at all so now they have all this time money and effort put into making a product that they're not going to consume so you're going to want to take that information and you're going to want to start if you haven't already you're going to want to start going through and deciding what seeds you need to purchase um, this is the time of year that the seed catalogs are all going out. I know my mailbox has been jingling every day with new seed catalogs, and it's some of my favorite times. But going through those catalogs and thinking about all the possibilities are great. But I caution you to not get tied up in looking at all the cool things that you're going to find in these books and ordering a bunch of things that are not well-suited for your climate not well suited for the space that you have available, or it's just not something that your family is going to consume. So be very careful with those things because it's easy to get wrapped up and excited and kind of overdo it. And then you end up buying a bunch of seed that you may or may not be able to use. And that is a waste. So one of the goals of, of being a sufficient homestead is to produce no waste. That's actually a principle in permaculture is producing no waste. And if I'm buying a bunch of seeds for things I'm not going to eat or that are just going to sit in my seed catalog, my seed box, um, unused, then I'm wasting. And that's money that I'm not getting a return on investment for. So that's a big thing that we're doing right now is, is going through and finalizing some of our plans. We're also going through at this time and deciding on varieties. For example, we're going to be adding some more fruit trees this year. So figuring out exactly which trees we plan on putting in next and figuring out exactly where we're going to source them from and what size tree we're going with. Um, so with trees, you can get a reachable or dwarf variety, a semi-dwarf variety. You can get a full-grown variety, and that all depends on the rootstock um, that your tree has been grafted onto. And 
It's important to bear that in mind when you're planting things like trees because trees are a lot more expensive than a packet of tomato seeds, for example. It's a much bigger investment. Now, you're going to get a lot more harvest year over year on your trees and, you know, they're something that's going to last many, many, many more years than a tomato plant. So it makes sense that they would cost more. But because they do cost more, you want to make sure that you're planting a tree variety that is size and climate appropriate. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're wanting to grow an, an apple variety that is disease and pest resistant in your area, you need to be looking at a tree variety that is disease and pest resistant that is known to do well in your area because I cannot grow citrus here in Ohio outdoors, for example. Um, I can grow you know, potted varieties, um, some dwarf varieties, things like a Myers lemon or lime, for example. But I have to bring those in and they cannot stay outside because we get deep, deep freezes here in Ohio and it would kill them. So you need to keep that kind of thing in mind as well. Now, um, aside from the planning, one of the things that I'm doing, um, during this time of year is continuing to build my apothecary. So throughout the harvest season and when things were, you know, in season, I collected lots of different uh, medicinal and herbal um, things. And some things I've harvested leaves, others it could be bark or stems or roots or flowers or fruits. And I've preserved them in the appropriate manner all season long and now that I have more time available um, because winter is our slow season at our nine to five job um, now is the time that I'm making things like tinctures and um, salves and now is the time to make herbal tea blends and have them ready so that you know the time of theory that you're really wanting those hot cups of tea or things the stuff is all ready and I don't have to blend it per glass. I have these blends already done. So that's a great thing to be working on. And if you don't have a lot of things built up for your apothecary, now is a great time to do some research if that's something you're interested in and look into what kind of medicinal plants would you maybe like to integrate into your garden plan? I find that a lot of folks that I consult with when I'm doing um, some design consultations, a lot of them are missing a very important thing, and that is the edges. Um, in permaculture, edges are everything. They are a huge opportunity for you to take advantage of. And I find that there's a lot of dead space between plants in gardens. And more often than not, I find that on edges, corners and edges. And that is a perfect place to put some of these medicinals. A lot of them, like basil, for example, and oregano. Oregano is one of my favorite medicinals. Oregano grows well with quite a few different things. And you know, you can harvest a ton of oregano and and absolutely do an oil um, decoction of that oregano and build yourself some oregano oil. And it is a powerful, powerful medicine. So 
it's important to figure out what medicinals are you willing or or interested in learning about and experimenting with and bearing in mind that medicinal doesn't necessarily mean that you have to powderize something and tape it take it in a gel capsule or that you need to tincture it and take it as drops it can simply be adding that to your diet on a more regular and conscious basis to enhance your diet and use food as medicine. So this is a great time and I have quite a few different books um, all about herbology and herbalism and uh, medicinal plants and foraging and I always take this time of year to learn more and every year I try to focus on about three to five new plants, um, plants that I am maybe familiar with, but I am unfamiliar with their medicinal um, or nutritional benefits. And so I take deep dives into those plants and I add to my repertoire every year. And that's how you're able to build an apothecary that has things that you will use and you're comfortable using. And it's a great way to integrate that into your garden plan. That's a great thing to do this time of year. I also find myself doing more cooking this time of year because I have more time home. So I have more opportunity to do cooking. And one of the things I like um, about homesteading is, you know, making from scratch. One of the complaints I hear is, yes, but it takes so much more time. Well, that can be true. But it can also be inaccurate because by the time you drive to a restaurant, sit down, get your drinks, order your food, get your food, eat your meal and drive home, you probably could have made a much more nutritious, delicious and certainly less expensive meal in the time that it took you to go out to dinner. And if you build yourself a repertoire of quick, easy meals using things you generally have on hand and you have that as kind of a quick go-to option, you're going to find yourself going out to eat a lot more, or a lot less, excuse me. And we eat at home a lot more when I meal prep. And I do meal prepping a little different than some. Um, And there's no real right or wrong way to do meal prepping as long as you're preparing things and making meal um, preparation easier at a later time for you. That is meal prepping and that however that looks to you is great. For me, I prefer to make a list of the month. I I try to do this towards the end of the prior month and I I literally just write, you know, the the dates 1 through 31 or 28, what 28 30, 31, whatever it could be, 29. Um, And I go through and I block out um, and I'll mark on things like family Thanksgiving. So my family, um, we celebrate Thanksgiving on the actual holiday, but then my mother's side of the family has our own family Thanksgiving and my dad's side has its own Thanksgiving. And then we do Thanksgiving with my husband's family sometimes. It, It just, there are multiple meals. So I make sure that I mark those off because those are, those are meals that I usually just have to bring a side dish to. I don't need to plan a whole meal. Um, so I'll, I'll mark those or we're going to be out of town with work or we're going to be, um, you know, having dinner with friends and it's already planned as a restaurant night. I'll mark that on the calendar and then I'll look and kind of get an idea for what I've got going on. And I make just a rough plan of what I'm going to have for lunch and dinner every day on that calendar. 
When I go shopping then, I can buy all of the things to make all of the things on my list, except for maybe some of the fresh things that I might need. Um, I may wait on those until closer because some of those fresh items won't last a full month. Um, but throughout the month, I know that as long as I pick something on the list, I have everything I need to make that particular meal. And it doesn't mean that on the first we have this and on the second we have that. I don't go that far into my planning because I have ADD and a lot of times things will distract me and change my, my, di- my decisions and I want to have that flexibility. But having the preparedness to have at least a month's worth of meals ready at any given point within that month, it's, it's definitely been a help. I also like to try to make it a point that when I am making meals that are easily duplicated, I go ahead and do that. So for tonight, for example, I'm making cabbage rolls and cabbage rolls are not difficult to make, but they are something that do take some time because there's a lot of different steps involved in getting it to come out just the way I like it. That being said, it doesn't take me much longer to do a double or quadruple batch than it does to just make a single batch. In fact, the original recipe that my grandmother had makes four cabbage rolls. And so the recipe that I use is already a duplicate. Um, It already is doubled. And from there, it just has, has exponentially grown. And what I like to do is I will go ahead and make those meals now, and I'll even go ahead and cook them now. And then I will go ahead and prepare them for the freezer, however that means. Um, I do use um, tinfoil pans for some things, but I reuse those. Um, I know not everybody does, but I do reuse those for certain meals. Um, But more often than not, I actually have just bought a bunch of different Pyrex baking dishes through the years um, at thrift stores. And I will go ahead and put my casserole dishes right in those Pyrex. I will go ahead and cover them with... um, either some tin foil or some cling film or beeswax wraps, whatever I have. Some of the Pyrex actually have um, lids and I still try to put something over top of the surface even before I put the lid down. I do find it makes the, the dishes stay fresher longer. Most of these dishes are not going to last in that freezer more than a month, so it's not a big deal. They're not going to get freezer burnt in that short of a period of time. I get that question a lot. Um, but it, it is a concern, so I do use a thin layer of wax paper or parchment paper or um, tin foil just to keep the surface um, protected. But I'll do that, and then later on in the month, I can have cabbage rolls again towards the end of the month, and I've already done all the work. All I have to do is get it out of the uh, freezer the night before let it thaw out, and then throw it in the oven the day of to reheat. And honestly, I find that the the reheated ones, the ones that I've duplicated, a lot of times they even taste better because they've, they've had time to really let those flavors marry together. This is a great time to work on your sourdough skills. Sourdough is still something I have yet to perfect. I am working on it. I am trying, guys. It is just not something that is quite yet in my wheelhouse. Baking has always been a struggle for me. I am a great cook. 
Baking is something I have always, always struggled with. Um, baking requires structure. It is very much a chemistry thing, and you have to have exact amounts of this and that to make the correct chemical reactions happen. And I am more of a, I taste and feel the way and smell the way things should look, look, feel, or taste. And you can't really do that with baking. It's It's got to be exact. So I really struggle. And... Um, so that's that's one of my faults. But the thing is with sourdough, sourdough can be very forgiving once you understand and get it down. Um, I definitely recommend with starting with something simple, just a simple loaf of sourdough bread. Um, keep doing that until you get it exactly perfect. Once you've got it exactly perfect, expand upon that and try doing some variations try your hand at something else and do that until you get that perfected and just keep expanding on your skills. Um, sourdough bread is, is very inexpensive and it is something that can last for years, generations. In fact, there are sourdough starters that are many, many, many years old, well over a hundred years old, um, that are still producing delicious, nutritious, fresh sourdough bread. Um, so that's something really fun. We're also taking a time and when we have these bitter cold temperatures, we kind of roam around the house and we feel around for cold spots and we try to figure out where we could be having some energy um, loss. And then we work on mitigating those. So we live in a house that was built in 1885 and as such, it does not have much insulation so we have done a lot of work at better insulating our house. Um, that has meant putting insulation in our attic, which I've talked about in a prior episode. That also means that we have added some spray foam insulation to some areas where there were gaps and, and cracks. We have done a lot more caulking to seal up um, areas. And yep, our, uh, our laundry room, uh, which is going to become a walk-in pantry eventually. Um, that room, when we redid that room, we gutted it to the studs and we actually, um, did insul uh, a better layer of insulation than any other room in our house. Um, we did use spray foam insulation, um, in that room to just get us a more efficient, um, room. And it has been the most energy efficient room, I think, in our whole house at this point too. It, it only has LED bulbs in there. It's, it's really, we've done a lot to make that room better. Previously, uh, when you went into that room in the winter, you almost needed a jacket because it was substantially colder than the rest of the house, again, because of a lack of insulation. And, you know, it, it's not something that we can do all at once. We cannot, we cannot, absolutely cannot gut all of our external walls, you know, all the way down to the studs. For one, our house is double coarse brick. So our external walls are brick with stucco and plaster on them. There's not anything to tear away. Um, if we were to put traditional drywall up, we would essentially be building um, a wall on top of our wall and then insulating that only to put drywall. And we're finding that that has been done in areas of our house, but they skipped the insulation step. So it's it's been a lot of, of challenges of finding all of these energy sinks in our house. And there were a lot. Um, we have reduced our electricity bill and our gas bill in the winter by over 50% in the last two years, um, just in the things that we've done already. And we continue to make improvements. But I do recommend on a bitter cold day, 
to just take a walk around your home, wear some really light, thin clothes. Um, like I'll wear shorts and a tank top, for example, and bare feet. And walk around the perimeter of every exterior wall in your home that you can. You would be surprised at some of the places that you're going to find air movement that you didn't know you had. Um, and you're going to find cold spots that you didn't know you had. And it can be something as simple as you have a baseboard maybe that is coming loose and needs to be caulked uh, because there's air gaps there. That is a, a really common thing that people don't think to look for, but it's something that we found we had an issue with in um, actually a couple of our rooms, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's that. You want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on your furnace filter. Um, if you're using a forced air furnace, then you want to be sure that your furnace filters are regularly cleaned um, out and replaced because that can cause to horribly inefficient um, heating, but it can also make your furnace struggle to heat and to blow, and that can cause extra wear and tear on your, your home furnace system, and it is also a major fire hazard. But those furnace filters also help to filter out a lot of the dust and dander and things that are in the air, and so they are really important um, to have. This time of year, we find that the air is very dry in our home. So we have um, rerouted the vent to our dryer, our clothing dryer, um, into the house. So when I have laundry going, I have that hot, steamy air venting from our dryer. It vents back into the home. And so that helps to reduce our heating costs because instead of pumping that hot air outside, I'm pumping that hot air back inside. It takes me no additional energy to do so, and it prevents me from just wasting that energy. Um, it's similar to having a gray water system on your home to water your garden. You know, they, there are diverters available so that you can have gray water systems attached. Um, and as long as you're using uh, biodegradable soaps and um, things like that, then you can use that as an excellent way to water your garden. Well, the same can be said for this. This is, this is a great way to kind of repurpose the the energy that's being used to dry my clothes and the moisture from cleaning those clothes is going right back into the air. Um, a whole house humidifier for our size home and the style of home that we have would be several thousand dollars, uh, thousands of dollars, and it would mean that we would have to replace our entire furnace system in order to do that because we would have to be retrofitted at that point and they do not make that system. So this is a way for us to get more life, um, longer life out of our furnace and to kind of prevent some of the issues that come along with having super dry air. Um, now, if you're unsure of what I mean, the relative humidity or the humidity in our home is is very 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 low and as such for example my house plants in the winter i have to water most of my house plants about every other day in order to keep them properly hydrated if i do not water them every other day they get really dry and start drooping and in the summer when we have our air conditioners running um, or we have fans going and there's humidity in the air naturally because here in Ohio we do have fairly humid air. Um, I only have to water my plants about once a week for the most part. So that 
that forced air is drying out the air. And so it's important to keep an eye on your houseplants, make sure they're staying properly hydrated, but it also can dry out your skin. And while that's, you know, something you can fix with things like lotions and oils and things and salves, if you can prevent the issue in the first place, then you can save those lotions and oils and salves for a time that you really need them. Um, so just keep that in mind. Those are the things that we are doing to stay busy here on the homestead in the winter. And I'm sure there are more things that I'll think of as soon as I'm finished with this episode. But those are the things that we came up with together. And those are the things that we are working on pretty actively right now um, to make sure that we have our home as ready for the, the deepest parts of winter we get in Ohio as possible and making sure that spring is going to be super successful. Um, now we are also starting some of our seedlings, specifically the onions, and I will be talking about that more on our next episode, which is going to be all about starting onions and growing onions. So keep that in mind and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in and we will talk to you very, very soon. 